This podcast is brought to you by Langley and Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part six of a seven-part series on managing business risk. This series is hosted by attorneys Dane Patrick and Mark Macias. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Hi, this is Dane Patrick with my partner Mark Macias. We're with Langley Manack. We're here today on Series 2, Episode 6 of our podcast. During our last session, we talked about ways a company can protect itself from liability through proper drafting of its contracts. Today, we want to talk about real-world examples that both Mark and I have experienced that relate to all the different topics we have been discussing. So let's get to it, Mark. Have, can you share with our listeners some examples of cases that you've handled in all of your years of experience that relate to the different topics that we've been talking about in the previous episodes? Sure, and I guess this calls for a disclaimer. Uh, before we get started with talking about the various cases that we have handled in our experience, and that relates to what is called a confidentiality clause. A confidentiality clause is something which keeps the terms of the settlement between the parties confidential and cannot be disclosed for any reason absent a court order uh, to any other party. And so when we're talking about that uh, specific case that you and I have handled in our history, we also need to be mindful about not providing sufficient information to enable somebody to determine the specific case we're talking about. So confidentiality clauses go back to a case called In Re Amos, and it's a very interesting case that involved a former San Antonio Spur by the name of Dennis Rodman. And at the time, uh, he kicked a photographer that was on the sideline of a basketball game. And that photographer, Mr. Amos, sued Dennis Rodman for that event. Ultimately, Dennis Rodman and his team of lawyers resolved that case. And as part of that settlement included a confidentiality provision. And in that provision, they specifically said that the terms were not to be disclosed. However, as part of that settlement, there was no monetary amount established for consideration for including that provision within the uh, settlement agreement. And that went up to a tax court. And a tax court determined that because a monetary amount was not included within the confidentiality provision 
that a specific portion of that resolution, which was into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, was actually going to be taxable. So when we try to protect our clients uh, when we've concluded cases, often we will include confidentiality uh, provisions and we will include a monetary value that we assign to that provision to allow it to survive an in-ray Amos type of challenge so that we can uh, protect the client's terms of settlements from the public in most cases. Thank you, Mark. So having said that, um, let's talk a little bit about some real-world examples of cases that you've handled over the years and maybe with hindsight being 2020, ways that maybe some of the pitfalls that you saw in your cases could have been avoided. Sure, and a lot of the cases that, that I've handled overlap with a lot of the work that you do, Dan. And so, for example, in the construction case that we talked about in our previous podcast where we've represented general contractors and subcontractors. In the case of a general contractor, you want to have the indemnity provisions that require the subcontractor to indemnify you and cover you as a, uh, a party in the case, even for your own negligence. In many circumstances, particularly in older cases, what we often found was that the indemnity provisions did not survive because they were not drafted appropriately. And that's going to cut both ways, depending upon whether you've represented the general contractor where you want the indemnity provision to survive, or if you're the subcontractor where you want to defeat the indemnity provision. Because as we've talked about in the past with our previous podcasts, those costs can run into the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And so under those circumstances, I've had cases where in representing the general contractor, the contract had an indemnity provision, but the indemnity provision was not conspicuousness. It was not conspicuous, rather. And so it did not survive the request for indemnity. On the flip side, I have also represented subcontractors where the indemnity provision was drafted correctly. And under those circumstances, not only did the insurance carrier have to provide the defense and indemnity and cover that subcontractor uh, for its negligence out of an incident, but also had to cover the general contractor for its negligence in causing the incident. Because you got to remember that when the jury is trying to assess negligence in the case, we have this concept in Texas called comparative responsibility. And the jury will look to the facts of the case and try to assess which party or parties were responsible for the incident. And the jury can assign percentages of responsibility that they believe fairly assess the liability as to each party. And under those circumstances, without the indemnity provision, each party will be required to pay their percentage share up to a specific amount and in some cases may be required to pay the entire share of the liability depending upon the jury's findings. So in those cases we've had circumstances where the subcontractor had to cover all of it. In some cases we've had uh, circumstances where the subcontractor only had to cover their portion because we were successful in defeating these indemnity clauses. Now Dane, I know that you've had 
a variety of experiences over your 30 years. Can you think of some real-world examples where you utilize business contracts and contract formation to help you with your client? So, Mark, um, you know, I, I think in almost, I'd say in at least 90% of the cases that I handle, you know, they're won or lost based upon the documents. Now, the documents are typically the contract documents, the correspondence between the parties, uh, and really everything in writing because, frankly, as you know, in most cases, uh, the witnesses have many different versions of what the story was behind the underlying dispute, but the documents don't lie. <clears throat> they tell you what happened at a particular point in time. And most of the cases I handle arise out of some type of business transaction where there is a, a key document or two that are in dispute. So, <clears throat> for example, uh, years ago I was involved in a construction dispute and it involved a situation where a building had collapsed and damaged a subcontractor's work. Well, the subcontractor had entered into a contract with a general contractor that had a limitation of damages clause in it. Now, you know, we were telling, talking earlier about how you can put these clauses in your contracts to protect one party, but one party that gets protected, the other party is going to lose, right? In this particular case, there was a limitation of damages clause in a contract between the subcontractor and the general contractor, and it basically said that the subcontractor couldn't recover for delay damages. So if the general contractor did something that caused delays, the subcontractor waived its right to collect for delay damages. In this particular case, when you have a building collapse, it not only damaged the subcontractor's work, but it delayed the job for a very long period of time. I mean, you can imagine <clears throat> you're halfway through a job, the building collapses, you've got to rebuild and start over again. You can imagine the delays that would be uh, uh, involved in that case. Well, the subcontractor ended up having to file a claim against the another subcontractor that, that it didn't have a contract with, but that, <clears throat> that caused the collapse, or allegedly caused the collapse. And the result of it was, you know, we were able to recover money for our client, but at the end of the day, it was very costly and very time-consuming because our client in that situation had agreed to a limitation of damages provision in the contract. Now, the general contractor loved it because they didn't get brought into the lawsuit. So it did its job for the general contractor, but maybe not necessarily for the subcontractor in that case. Uh, how about you, Mark? Can you think of any other situations that you've been involved in where, you know, looking back, that something could have been done differently or uh, to avoid the dispute that arose? Well, sure. Um, and one of the things that, as you were talking, it led me to remember about a case I handled many, many years ago. And this is a circumstance where, by all accounts, while the company had a very sizable policy of insurance, it was insufficient to deal with the damages that were caused. And so the, the case involved a trucking company, and I, I won't get into the details of the trucking company, but the uh, brakes failed on that truck and it collided with another vehicle and paralyzed, unfortunately, the driver of another vehicle. And as we go through the discovery process, we learned that 
they only had a commercial general liability policy and they didn't have any other policies in place. So that should bring us to another point of discussion here in talking about when you have insurance policies that can protect you from different types of events, you can also purchase additional policies above and beyond just a standard policy, which provides even additional layers of coverage. We call those umbrella or excess policies. And in, in this case, the company had multiple assets. It had many trucks in its fleet. It had many employees uh, for whom that company worked. And so there was a substantial chance that the case could have resulted in the bankruptcy of this company. And this company should have had an umbrella or excess policy to guard against circumstances like we're talking about. Because at the end of the day, these excess or umbrella policies, while they all vary in terms of cost, the cost of having them is so much more minuscule than the cost of not having them. And particularly when it comes to a circumstance where a truck tragically paralyzes another individual, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars for the life care for that individual over the course of his life, but we're talking about millions and millions of dollars over the course of that person's life. And in this particular case, that person did not have that. And so the entity was left to have to resolve the case for the amount of its available coverage, but then thereafter had to pay additional damages on a monthly basis for a very long period of time. So while you know we had the benefit in that case of 2020 and the client could have had those additional policies of insurance purchased prior to the event for this event, it did not, but it learned a very valuable lesson in that case. And going forward thereafter, that company ended up buying not just a regular commercial general liability policy and not just a commercial auto policy, but purchased excess policies above and beyond that to protect it from a situation just like this. Mark, that all sounds very complicated. I guess that's another reason why you want to have a really good insurance agent if you're a business to help you make sure that you buy all the right kinds of coverages. Right. And in that in that case that I just talked about, there, you know, there were potential claims that could have been made against the insurance agent, but the client absolutely refused to do it. But the agent himself, or I think it was a him in that case, he was a very reputable insurance agent and just didn't cover all of the eventualities that could have occurred. It goes to the moral of the story is do your homework. Know your assets. Know the issues that could arise in your circumstance. And the only way that you can know that is by going to a lawyer who knows the area that you work in, knows the potential pitfalls for what can happen in cases involving that type of company and can properly advise you on the types of things that you might need so that you can then be armed with the questions that you need to have to ask your insurance agent to then provide you with sufficient coverage for any event that might arise. Well, Dane, um, I've given you an example of not having the right amounts of insurance to help you in, in defending a case and indemnifying you against uh, perils of an event. Can you think of an example where that happened to you? Well, Mark, uh, I'll tell you what I can think of examples of is where the, um, uh, where the business didn't have all the right contractual documents in place 
and as a result they've had disputes arise because frankly no one really knew what the agreement was at the end of the day. Um, a lot of the cases that I handle are, are what would they call business divorce cases, like where businesses are either separating or the partners or owners have decided to go their separate ways and divide the assets of the business. And typically you need some kind of agreement to do all of that. And what I see often in, in these cases is that the paperwork doesn't always get completed. The parties think that they can work things out as they go. And I've often seen situations where just to, the opposite happens. It blows up into a dispute and it becomes very expensive. For example, um, I was once involved in a case where uh, two business owners that had a substantial business uh, decided they wanted to separate and go their own ways. Well, they were trying to figure out a mechanism where they could operate in different territories. And so they were thinking about some kind of licensing agreement or something like that so that they would stay out of one another's way and that they could both operate profit profitably and avoid disputes. Well, often in these business transactions, there's a series of documents that gets, they get negotiated. And often they will talk about you know, agreeing to enter to, into an agreement at a later time. Well, there were some documents where they discussed, you know, at a later time coming into an agreement as to where each company could operate and that agreement never got entered and never got finalized. The result was the company started stepping on the, or the, I should say the different business partners once they uh, separated and, and started forming new companies they started stepping on one another's toes and one business owner thought you know the other business owner was invading their territory and it turned out into an all-out turf war. Well, uh, there ended up being numerous parties that got sued. Uh, we got brought in to defend one of the companies, and both companies ended up spending a substantial amount of money. But at the end of the day, the real problem was that all the companies had not taken the time to document their separation. They had part of it down, but they didn't have all of it down. So these companies ended up spending a tremendous amount of money trying to figure out what that separation was. And then at the end of the day, when they finally uh, entered into a resolution, they basically were having to rewrite what their original agreement was supposed to be. And it was all so unnecessary because if someone had just taken the time and had the patience to finish the paperwork, they would have avoided all of that headache, expense, and frankly, uh, frankly, bad blood between the parties that never needed to be there. Mark, how about yourself? Can you think of any other cases that would be uh, educational to our viewers regarding the topics we've been discussing? Well, sure. You know, we've talked about business contracts, and we've talked about the need to have them, even though we live in an environment and a culture where we can rely upon our handshake to enter into agreements. And what I want to talk to you about is the flip side about when you don't have an agreement and when you've relied upon a handshake. Uh, because I've had a case where that, in fact, was the situation. There was a handshake agreement between the party. I will pay you X if you do Y. And nothing had been reduced to writing. There was n 
nothing in the document regarding who was controlling the uh, the area that was being worked on, for example. There was nothing with regard to what methods were going to be used to employ uh, employees to do the work that was part of the contract itself. And that kind of goes to this concept in our law called the statute of frauds. And if there's a contract, generally speaking, where the value of the contract would be in excess of $1,000, our laws require that that contract be reduced to writing. And in this particular case, there was no agreement about that. There was no inclusion of an indemnity provision, a limitation of liability, a disclaimer. All of the things that we've talked about in our prior uh, podcasts, none of them were found in this agreement because all it was was a handshake between two parties. And to your example earlier, the parties ended up spending an exorbitant amount of attorney time, time uh, responding to discovery, time attending to depositions to try to resolve the issue that should have been resolved well, with what had been two friends to make sure that everybody was on the same page with regard to the specifics of their arrangement. Uh, had all that been done in the beginning, a lot of headaches and heartaches would have been avoided and they didn't do it in our case. Thank you, Mark. Those are all really good examples. Uh, you know, a lot of the uh, clients that we represent here at Langley and Manac, and a lot of the businesses we represent here at Langley and Manac are family-owned businesses. I'd say that 90% of our businesses that we represent are privately held. And as you know, especially in San Antonio, uh, so many privately held businesses at some point in time were started by family members. And, you know, a lot of times we see these businesses they grow, they get bigger, and then they start to have issues because of family dynamics. Um, and a lot of times in my practice, I see this happens after the founder of the company, let's, let's, let's say dad, for example, uh, after he passes away. And a lot of times the way the partnership documents are set up or the limited liability company documents are set up for that business is that maybe the oldest child for example steps in and takes control of the business and maybe the oldest child also becomes the executor of the estate and so everything is put into the uh, under the control and responsibility of the oldest child and, and that's the way all the documents are set up um, one thing that but the, the problem in a lot of these cases that we handle is, you know, that if, if you don't have a healthy family and you don't have healthy family dynamics, a lot of the times all those things remain festering under the surface until the founder of the company passes away. So I've had, in, in the last couple of years, I've had two cases involving families where there literally were tens of millions of dollars at stake in family assets. and. In one of the cases, um, when Dad passed away, he left one of his children in charge of everything, but there were four children, and the children did not get along. And we're talking about adult children in their, in their mid-50s, 60s. I mean, people uh, who you would think, well, you know, they're old enough, mature enough, or, you know, things that happened when they were a kid just don't matter anymore. But unfortunately, that's exactly when they start arising. In this particular case, there was a partnership involved, trust involved. Uh, and dad's estate involved and uh, substantial assets involved and we were trying to find a way to 
basically make peace between all the family members because they didn't want this one sibling in charge of running the family business and managing the family assets. The case ended up in litigation, and the litigation was about how do we divide the business, how do we divide the assets fairly. And old court, this is what we think we can do, but would you give us permission to do this? The parties ended up fighting over all the personal property, as they often do in these cases, and they spent just way too much money fighting over things that didn't matter financially. But there was so much bad blood between them, and they all felt like the other was favored by the parents, that they literally were, were airing in, in their disputes through the litigation process, which is not the place you want to do that. So what I'd like to, going back to the example about talking about properly documenting things, um, I think that if you own a family business and you're setting up your, your LLCs and your corporations and everything, and you're doing some succession planning tied into that, you need to re really think about who those, who, how the control of those families' businesses are going to pass once you, uh, once you pass away. Because <clears throat> even though it may, there may be a cost involved, you may be better off having those businesses managed by some type of professional trustee like a bank or something like that rather than setting the paperwork up to where they're managed by uh, the eldest child or whomever because if all the children are going to be fighting it doesn't matter how qualified that child might be uh, it may be a disservice to all your family members not to bring in outside professionals to help you once something happens to the founder of that business. In, in that circumstance <clears throat> do you recommend that each uh, in your case sibling hire their own lawyer and talk about these issues ahead of time with a lawyer to try to see if a resolution can be had before, in this case, dad passes away. <clears throat> I, th I think what really needs to happen in that case is dad needs to sit down and talk to all the children and not just talk to one child. <clears throat> and dad needs to have bring his lawyer in to talk to both uh, to talk to his children and say, look, this is what dad is thinking about doing, and kind of take their pulse. If it looks like it's not going to work out well, then maybe dad and the lawyer then have a private conversation about bringing in a professional, maybe it's in the nature of a corporate trustee like a bank, and have them manage the business once something happens to dad. Now, you said you had two examples in the last year in, in which that happened. Did they all play out similarly? Well, the other example actually didn't happen. It wasn't so much that uh, Dad had passed away, but Mom and Dad were trying to find a way to uh, kind of retire from being active in the business, and they brought in an, a, another child to run the business for them. Unfortunately, that child started running the business more like it it was his own business and it was a, a partnership so the, the child was a general partner and then this was a limited partnership and so let me just kind of stop right there you know we talked about earlier about having different entities well a limited partnership you have a general partner and the general partner they may have a minuscule interest in a business but guess what the documents can be set up so that the general partner controls the business Mom and Dad turned over control of the business to an elder son, and the elder son started using that money for other things other than just the business. 
So mom and dad down the road weren't getting along. They couldn't agree on how to run the business. They couldn't agree on who to put replace the elder son with. So once again, we're going back to the paperwork, and now we're talking about partnership agreements. There was no mechanism in these agreements what to do if they became deadlocked. Well, what happened is when they became deadlocked, it all ended up in a lawsuit, and it literally exploded. And we had other children who were then mad at the one uh, uh, son who has been running the business, and now they're mad, and they're wanting mom and dad to do something. And so all the family dynamics in that case came to light before anyone passed away, but it was after they retired, so kind of a sim uh, similar example. Once again, if mom and dad had thought about it more carefully, we would have avoided the litigation. We ended up splitting the baby, giving part to all the various parties involved in the litigation and dividing up the assets, but they spent so much so much money having to do that. If mom and dad had thought about it earlier, what they might have done, once again, is brought in, set up the partnership documents to where they had a professional running the business when they were ready to retire. Because if you have, in that case, I think there were like three or four kids. <clears throat> if they're not getting along and they're not in agreement with who's going to continue the business, um, you may be better off with having a professional involved. Now, another thing that you can do in these documents, uh, whether it be a limited liability company or a partnership agreement, a limited partnership agreement, is put in provisions what to do in the event that the owners become deadlocked. They can't make a decision. Like, for example, they couldn't make a decision on who to make the next general partner. There should be a mechanism that another third party steps in or something, but you can draft the documents once again in a way to anticipate all of these things so that you avoid all of this costly litigation. Obviously, you and I, you know, we enjoy the challenge of litigation, but let's face it, for our clients, litigation is no fun, and it really is, is a huge expense. And, you know, you bring up some examples of how, had things been documented properly, things might have gone a different direction, right? And it takes me back to a time when, uh, getting back to the construction world and some of the cases that I handle in that arena, where everybody thought that the documents were properly in place everybody thought that the subcontractor had actually purchased the policy of insurance everybody thought that indemnity provisions were in place and additional insured provisions were in place well guess what the certificate of insurance that supposedly provided all of that uh, safety to the general contractor was a fraud it didn't exist. It literally was created for the purpose of showing the contractor, the general contractor, that the subcontractor had gone out and secured all of that information, all of that insurance, all of that coverage and protection, and it just didn't happen. And so, inevitably, a incident occurred, and the subcontractor and the general contractor were sued. The general contractor looked to the subcontractor based on the contract of that he had with the subcontractor based on the requirements for insurance, based on the requirements for additional insured, and the subcontractor had to own up and say, I didn't get all that. <clears throat> and when he, they were shown the certificate of insurance coverage, the uh, answer was, well, I didn't get that insurance coverage that I told you I got. And ultimately what it resulted in was a general contractor who did have insurance and did have things done appropriately to have stepped into this litigation and then become the target of that litigation because they were the only person that had insurance. So what's the moral of the story there? If you're the general contractor, 
you want to double check and make sure that the coverage that is said to have been provided to you is in fact in existence and you want to double check that the additional insured provision in the insuring agreement is in fact a provision with the insurance agent so that you can have the coverage and the safety afforded by that contract that you're requiring your subcontractor to have. Now as a subcontractor, what do you want to do? Well, by all means, do not create a forged document that says you have insurance coverage when you don't. Do it the right way, go to your insurance company, talk to your agent, come armed with all the questions after having talked to your lawyer, and make sure you get the right policy of insurance that covers your company as a subcontractor, but also meets your contractual obligations to the general contractor to ensure that they are covered under the terms of the contract that you have in place with that particular entity. So as the old saying goes, trust but verify. Exactly right, 100%. So Mark, it seems like that between your 20 plus years of experience and my 30 plus years of experience that we're both kind of saying the same thing, that so many of the cases that we see and the problems that we see and handle and deal with could have been avoided early on by doing a lot of the things that we've been talking about since our first episode of this podcast which goes back to setting up a proper corporate entity, properly managing that entity, and properly making sure that uh, all of your contracts and all of your insurance, right, is in place. And all of your policies. Remember, in, in our earliest podcast, we talked about not just having all of the correct legal documents filed with the correct entities, and we also talked about having all of the p- potential insurance policies, but we then went a step farther and we talked about the fact that they should have corporate policies in place that guard against things that um, encourage safety, for example, as a focus of the company, that has provisions in place that employees will be expected to follow so that they can avoid an unfortunate incident that ultimately results in litigation. So doing their homework ahead of time will prevent a lot of the problems that they encounter in in litigation down the road. Thank you, Mark. This has been another great session. Um, I want to ask our listeners to stay tuned because we are going to have a wrap-up session next time and we're going to pull everything together for our listeners so they understand how all of the things we've talked about in the previous episodes work together. It'll be a great bird's eye view for them to understand how to properly operate uh, their businesses and protect the owners from liability. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com, or call us at 210-736-6600.